You've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented Runaway. Watching it with me is Dean Newman from The Daily Jaws. Hi Dean, how are you? Hi Rich, good thank you. Well welcome back, this is your first time on the podcast since the Cannibal Run. As an introduction to this film, I'll admit I'd never seen it before, and I remember it was around the time that we did the last podcast that I'd seen it pop up on iTunes, and as I put it on Twitter, you were giddy like a schoolboy at the prospect of doing this one. What's your memories of the Tom Selleck vehicle runaway? For me, it it kind of evokes sort of really strong memories of sort of like a Saturday night on BBC One when they kind of used to show sort of big films sort of around that time. I know that was one of them and, you know, you could guarantee during that season it'd be like Blue Thunder, War Games or or even that other great Michael Crichton uh, 80s film, Looker. Uh, and like my, most Michael Crichton stuff, it's sort of like more pertinent today than than it kind of ever was, really. I hadn't seen it for for ages, uh, probably about twenty years. So it it was a great delight to kind of get reacquainted with it, and I think it holds up remarkably well. Obviously, some stuff's really dated, but it, it's one of those films that's got a great core idea, and and I'm sure at some point. Like most of the things, it'll end up getting remade at some point, just because of the whole drone thing and robots and computers. You know, it's say it's more more pertinent than ever, and I think that's probably the main reason that I still don't have a um, robot lawnmower because just because of Runaway. And I think as well, when I was growing up, I think it also was the main reason I didn't have any Zoids, just because it reminds me of those um, it reminds me of those spiders. <laughs> well, it's funny because this film came out the same year as Terminator, and I suppose they're they're very closely linked, albeit vastly different beasts. And yet, as you say, this film was written and directed by Michael Crichton, who I suppose is mm. most famous for Jurassic Park, also writing Jurassic Park. Yeah. And now this film, so released in the US anyway, 1984, and it was set in the very vague, the near future. Now, I don't remember seeing at any point what year this was actually set in. Um, no, I don't recall seeing that either. Um, I just kind of felt like it was like, no, maybe 10, 15 years further on from, from sort of 1984. That that seemed to be because, you know, every, everyone was driving sort of pretty much normal cars apart from the apart from the police, which had laser cannons and stuff in it, but I might touch on that later. But, yeah, everything kind of seemed pretty much normal and, you know, there was nothing kind of outlandish demolition man style. Just to read the synopsis from IMDb, I made it quite clear that I couldn't wait to see it, and my wife went, nah, you can have that huh? one. I'll read, I'll read it out now. It's, um, in the near future, a police officer specialises in malfunctioning robots. When a robot turns out to have been programmed to kill, he begins to uncover a homicidal plot to create killer robots, and his son becomes a target. That's pretty awesome. It sounds great, you know, essentially that's, that's like iRobot, essentially, the, the Will Smith version, not the book, obviously, but... It still sounds brilliant, and also it's got Tom Selleck. Yeah. So to be honest, obviously he was trying to carve out. Obviously he didn't get the Indiana Jones role, so then he, he kind of did not. Um, they said take the high road. Oh, it is take the uh, high road to China, not take the high road. That's the Scottish soap. That, that would have been uh, a very different. <laughs> well, I guess the prospect of seeing Tom Selleck in a police uniform and not driving around Hawaii wearing a very loud Hawaiian shirt. Uh, or driving a Ferrari even, must have been very strange to some people. Um, I guess that's not what people thought of Tom Selleck. He's trying to get away from being typecast. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it was. it was. And I think, you know, he'd, he'd got, I think the moustache was styled differently. 
So there was that kind of crucial, you know, obviously needed to get into character. So I think it was obviously a regu- regulation moustache. And I think it was just great. And as you say, everyone was kind of into Magnum PI. So so for me, around that period, it was a bit like uh, Roy, Roy Scheider, really. If Roy Scheider was in it or Tom Selleck was in it, I'd kind of give it a go. I even gave Lasseter a go, but I, I don't think I've lasted all the way through that. But I know, I know during that period... He, he was kind of trying out all different genres and then obviously kind of ended up with sort of three men and a baby and, and then kind of ended up doing a few more of those uh, those kind of sort of comedy films. Although he did do An Innocent Man, which was kind of like, again, kind of linking in with Harrison Ford. I guess that was like his version of... Uh, presumed innocent i guess i mean it's strange that this coming out in 1984 the same time as terminator basically two films about killer robots it's very reminiscent of the whole deep impact and armageddon saga with two films with very similar plot lines coming out at the same time but it also shows the difference between the fact that terminator has gone on to be one of the most popular science fiction films of all time and this it was bloody fun. I'm, I'm not going to give that away. And I only found it while waiting for my wife to have a baby. But it was good fun. But you can see why Terminator went on to be the roaring success. And this was, as you say, a Saturday evening BBC jobby. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like proper B-movie stuff. And, and you know, it's kind of similar, I, I guess, to other films of that time, like um, Trances and, and, and things like that, where it, it wasn't perfect, but you knew it had a great story and... It was always interesting, whether it's the um, sort of flying bullets or the sort of robot spiders and, and things like that. So always had something. Always had something interesting, and I think that was always the thing with Michael Crichton. I think that was where the beauty of him being both the writer and, and director. I know you mentioned obviously Jurassic Park, which is sort of like what most people will remember him for today. But I know for me, it was always it was always that kind of holy. Before that, it was that holy trinity of Westworld. Yul Brynner, again, uh, robots go amok in a theme park, so mixing both Runaway and, and Jurassic Park. Uh, Looker, which was a, another early 80s film, that's a brilliant kind of tech noir with uh, Albert Finney and, and James Coburn and sort of about plastic surgery and the way people look. Again, more, more pertinent today. And then, then obviously this, although he did also um, direct um, the seven, late 70s conspiracy thriller coma which interestingly enough tom Selleck had a very brief sort of appearance in that as as a body that was in suspended animation or something but he, he was kind of in that briefly the film opens with the credits of microchips and bits of computer code which in 1984 probably looked super advanced but tom Selleck is a police sergeant seems to have a knack for fiddling with old toasters and robots and stuff and even his sort of housemaid is basically a robot who talks and has some sort of almost sentient being too. I do find it an awful waste of resources that a police sergeant on a police sergeant's salary is responsible for fiddling with microchips. I'm sure they could find some uh, civilian member of staff who would probably be a lot cheaper to employ to do this job for them. Or, you know, if, if it was set in 2018, they could just outsource it to the group four. Yeah, well, maybe because it was early 80s, maybe they, they just thought, you know, California Highway Patrol and just thought mi- microchips. So maybe it was kind of just related to that. So he's you know, still police, still police related. The standard bit of exposition in there, though, as to sort of why 
because the the new girl, you know, we'll call her the new girl. I know it's not politically correct, but in um, uh, in 1984, she's wearing a skirt, which of course was the done thing back then. Captain Harris from Police Academy makes an appearance. It's a lot more understated than uh, than Captain Harris. Mm, yeah, and I think as well, it is full of so many '80s faces. You so say you've got you've got those two. You've got as um, Tom Selleck's son. You've got the kid from Flight of the Navigator. Obviously, before he went off the before he went off the rails, <laughs> and, and also in one scene, you've got a security guard who um, is actually played by uh, Data's Data's dad from from oh, the Goonies, and that's kind yeah. of quite interesting. Yeah, he was in a great TV series with uh, G.W. Bailey called uh, Major Crimes, which which I think they're in that for about eight years, and that was spin off itself from from the Closer. So that's well well worth catching out. Uh, I think also uh, th- there's another kind of cop who's like a bit techy and things, and he played like the cop partner in Monster Squad. So it is, you know, full of so many familiar faces, and obviously Kirsty Alley as well, which was kind. Of, I'd completely forgot she was in it, although I think she's she's really hammy in it. She's uh, she's terrible. So she makes an appearance and has a lot of screen time in a brief part of the film, but say for the first probably half of the film we don't meet her but the first sort of 10 minutes or so there is no. that exposition where we're explaining that jack ramsey i mean what an 80s cop name that is um he is working with this gadgets because he had had an incident because he was scared of heights so the suspect got away from him and killed a family so of course he he has demons if this was Liam Neeson, he'd have gone off on some sort of murderous rampage. But Tom Selleck's a lot more reserved than this, I think. Their first sort of call is, it's uh, and this is more standard, it's a, a standard runaway call, which is a nice use of the film name, where they have to go to a, was it a wheat field and rescue a runaway sort of corn picker or something like that. It's um, a little bit weird. But then we go yeah. back to the office, they sort of have a laugh, and then the next call comes in and it's a homicide. Which I believe is the first ever homicide committed by a robot. They go down to the scene of the crime and there's already a woman been killed inside the house where a machine capable of holding a three fifty seven Magnum has scared the dad out of the house, leaving his 10-month-old child. Of course, here comes Selleck, dressed as uh, the Knight Templar from Indiana Jones and Last Crusade. And he's also got a drone which will help him out. And of course the evil machine looks like one of those old OHP overhead projectors we used to have at school. Bit of a throwback to that nineteen eighty four there. Oh what, what, what the one with the um the one we put the acetate on them. Yeah, it was weird seeing something my history teacher used to use, uh, brandishing a gun like Dirty Harry. It is. I mean it looks like something that even Uncle Owen wouldn't buy in, in Star Wars. It's sort of like, you know, put that put that back on the bloody thing. Uh, you know, it's and there were some there were some particular shit items in you know in, in in the Star Wars in that particular Star Wars scene. But it, it does out shit them. Although saying that, I do think that scene is particularly tense. And and I think that they ramp it up. And obviously the cameraman when he goes in, it kind of he, he buys it. So it's sort of like you know these machines aren't aren't fucking about. And and I think as well you know to to to, to eleven I guess is is that there's a baby in there. So it really does it. It's the sort of thing that, even though there's a silly robot in there, it kind of really grounds it in in that kind of reality that still works today. And I thought that that scene was particularly effective. And in some ways, I think that they would have been better off opening with that rather than the silly jolly japes with the um, robotic threshing machine or, or whatever it was. Just because I think that really helped for me sort of set the tone as it 
as it being sort of like, wow, this is sort of like, although it's a light action sort of sci-fi adventure film, it was, that was kind of like probably the most tense scene in there really. And it was, you know, I think it was, was really well done. Of course, what we soon realise is that the bloke is a technician for the evil corporation uh, owned by Gene Simmons, and there is a reason why that his house is being targeted. Simmons looking very much like a demented Billy Zane, and it turns out that this guy has been working with another technician to develop a evil strain of microchips to make robots go bad. It's a bit like the beginning of The Spy Who Loved Me with the two technicians developing the technology who uh, Stromberg tries to bump off pretty quickly. What did you make of Gene Simmons in this? It's almost like Dennis Hopper must have watched that before he decided to do Speed or something. It's that kind of... Or, um, what's his name? Ham Tyler uh, from from V. Yeah, Michael Ironside. I think only Michael Ironside probably beats him in outlandish performance-wise for, for kind of Highlander 2. But um, it, it kind of lends itself to to this film, I think. It, it's and it is quite. I think even when I was little, when I saw it, he was quite menacing and disturbing, with without being sort of like Skeletor or anything like that. And he, you know, he looked normal-ish. Yeah, he, there, there's something kind of like odd and, and off kilter about him. Obviously, I know microchips were like the size of mm. credit cards uh, back then. You know, you're going to look at things. You know, dates them really quickly. Uh, those kind of um, early mid '80s films. You had to look at the microchips in state-of-the-art microchips in a view to a kill. But um, the, these these spiders, you'd think they'd almost be smaller, but they're, they're kind of like the size of a mini metro. It's sort of like they are they are quite huge. So be finding difficult places where to kind of hide them and and keep them out of people's sight. And they must make an awful racket as well. Because the the other guy from the the crime scene, the guy whose wife died, the uh, Tom Selleck tries to basically take him into custody to protect him from Gene Simmons. This just sounds really weird if you use their actor names and not character names. But yeah, so and when he sees mm-hmm. Simmons sort of lurking at the hot dog stand, he decides to run off. And Doctor Luther shoots this really bloody weird rocket bullet thing that we essentially find out as a heat-seeking missile. It's quite clever. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I know the Monday morning after seeing that or, or after renting it out, that, that was that that was why you rented that film for the... If, even if you didn't know the name of the film, it'd be like, have you seen that film with the flying bullet? It, you know, it's but obviously it's someone running around with a camera and then it's kind of speeded up or whatever, it's a miniature camera, but it it's still great. And, and even the kind of effects where it kind of whizzes through the screen is is still holds up pretty well, which I was quite surprised about. But I think they have actually invented a bullet which does go around corners now. So, you know, these, as I said before, these things are becoming science fact. And I'm sure they don't need a really great gun like his, which interestingly, in the the poster for the film, in in the VHS video cover, it was actually Tom Selleck holding that particular gun, even though he never uses it in the film. I suppose it does look that good, though, that they don't have to worry about continuity or anything like that. It's let's give our big name the big gun and hope no one notices. Yeah, it's a shame they couldn't kind of shoehorn a scene where he uses that, because it would have been it would have been quite cool, I thought, even if it was for taking out some of the spiders at, at some point. But it you know even just 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 as an excuse for him to kind of stick it on the for him to be having it um, would have been great for something like publicity shots, etc. But you know, I'm I'm fine. I'm fine with that. It works on that. <laughs> It's the, the equivalent of, I suppose, a, a Star Wars poster of Han Solo holding Darth Vader's lightsaber. Yeah. That, that sort of thing, really. 
Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So after this, um, we find that the the stash of microchips, because we know that they're evil because they have a red stripe on them. <laughs> they're being locked up in the secure offices of the uh, evil corporation. And the executive secretary is Kirsty Alley, who we mentioned earlier. She's mm. tra- trapped in the office by what looks like a very weird-looking tease made that shoots electricity at people. Selick tries to bamboozle it by um, knocking over computer terminals before throwing his sports jacket over it, or someone's sports jacket. So, God, for anyone who's not seen this film, this sounds absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> but uh, but also, the way you're describing it, I think, with the uh, you know the storyline, it actually sounds quite complicated as well for, uh, for something that's quite quite straightforward. But this is this is the Crichton element, I suppose. It probably, if you take all the ridiculousness of the film away, on paper or in a book, it probably makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but I, th- I think that's where its remake kind of status kind of, you know, I think comes to the fore, really, because I think if you take all those elements and tighten up some of the loose ends and and have, you know, perhaps some more credible people in some of the roles and better special effects, etc., then it, it's those kind of things that would help lift all those other elements off, off the page better than they did in the original. But, you know, it's still, it's still hokey fun. Who do you think would be considered for the casting? Because all I could think about was who they'd have to get some sort of slightly cheesy big rock star in order to play the villain. I don't really know who that would be. It'd be someone like that Dave Grohl or someone yeah, like that. Yeah, I don't know. There's not many rock stars. Again, in that period, there was obviously... Cause I know, again, going back to microchips and if you need to a kill, but I know before Christopher Walken, they were kind of mooting David Bowie for, for kind of the Max Zorin role and stuff. So, yeah. yeah, there doesn't seem to be that many uh, kind of... It all, it's all gone over to wrestlers, really, isn't it? It's, uh, there's not really... <laughs> yeah. If in doubt, stick to Wayne Johnson, in it. Yeah, yeah, or, or Dave Barista, if you can't can't afford him. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm not really sure who you would... I'm not really down with today's music, but I guess, you know, H the equivalent... H from Steps. I don't know. Yeah, H from Steps. I was thinking Noddy Holder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that would, that would be that would be something else. Or, or perhaps the, uh, the the guitarist from Roxette, I think, would be, would be quite good. <laughs> um, and I guess I suppose you'd have... I mean, it, it probably wouldn't be as, as diverse or bizarre if you had someone like Kiefer Sutherland. It'd be too much like Jack Bauer, I guess. Well, this yeah. guy's name's Jack, I, isn't it? it? It would almost be quite nice if it was someone who was in a cop show at some point. So, uh, I don't know, Matt LeBlanc's not doing Top Gear anymore, and obviously he was uh, briefly <laughs> in uh, Mac and Cheese. Obviously another robot, <laughs> so perhaps he could be in it. But funnily enough, you know, he'd probably work quite well in something like that. But would they have to... Obviously, that would be in the Selick role, but I don't know. Would they have to have a moustache? I don't know. Maybe if they did it as a time with Movember. And uh, <laughs> yeah. over the course of the film, the moustache had to grow. No, no, that would that that would work. And perhaps <laughs> you could actually have um, Tom Selleck as the villain this time round. It's actually a uh, sequel, but a reboot. So yeah. it's, uh, he's, he's got that pissed off at kind of fixing all these... Uh, kind of toasters and teas maids that it's made him kind of flip. The next part of this, uh, this is where, as you say, Kirsty Alley describes Gene Simmons. Again, I'm using actor names, but it's more fun. Um, she describes it, oh, she's, he's evil, you know, you don't understand. So they have to, of course, go and get him. And because it's an 80s film, Tom Selleck walks into this, looks like a hotel suite and sees a topless woman <laughs> just 
happily applying her makeup because that's how all women do it. And Penny from Dirty Dancing, or Karen Thompson to give her a character name, she bursts into the office and Gene Simmons is in there with some goons who I believe are there as sort of potential buyers for his new technology Mm. that he's developing. And it becomes a really strange little shootout because he shoots a couple of the coppers, he shoots Penny from Dirty Dancing in the arm and runs off to a waiting helicopter because every villain in the 80s had a helicopter. (laughs) Now, she's quite lucky because all the other coppers died and yet she got shot and, and appears to be reasonably fine. She's not been shot with a bullet. She's been shot with an unexploded rocket. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I must admit, I, I, I didn't re- recall that it was an unexploded rocket. But now you're saying that obviously the other, the other cops, they all kind of exploded off camera, etc. Because you did hear them kind of blow up. So I did, did wonder what was going off there. But yeah, I mean that that whole scene is actually, it, it almost seems like it's in a different movie. It seems like it's out of like a one of the eighties Death Wish movies or something. But it's. <laughs> um, Obviously, it's all kind of there to kind of put the partner in peril and, and kind of get it Selick to kind of question the use of state-of-the-art, in, in brackets, uh, technology to help save her because he sort of says that he won't... He doesn't want a robot to kind of save her. He wants to kind of do it himself. So it's a bit like the uh, sort of uh, toilet scene from Lethal Weapon 2 where he kind of <laughs> helps help save her and sort of dons the... Um, sort of a bomb-proof vest and stuff like that. Selick really does lose his shit in that scene, and actually, I think it's the first time... It was quite shocking. It was like, Selick is a good shouter. He, sh- he should shout in more scenes, I think, uh, in more in more films and things. Um, but, you know, he actually does use the F-word, which was, was quite surprising, and it was like, clearly that wasn't on BBC One when they screened it back in the 80s. Uh, it was a, a genuine surprise to hear him not only kind of raise his voice, but also to, to kind of drop an F-bomb while saving someone from a bomb. This is, again, a scene, and as you say, it was there was tension and it felt like it was quite removed from the, the silly action. Um, and it, as we mentioned before, the, where the overhead projector was holding the family hostage, um, and the cameraman there went in with, with Tom Selleck and got shot for his trouble. And I was wondering if this is some sort of thing that they also looked at in a lot of 80s movies like The Running Man where everything's on TV, everything's fair game to be broadcast and almost like in in the current climate where everyone from genius to idiot has got a mobile phone with a video facility on where all things happening are going to be shared on Sky News or Twitter or whatever within seconds. Uh, and again, you know, even though Tom Selleck said, right, no one in here, just just me, What's that? Oh, it's a remote TV camera. And he just kind of had that acceptance of, uh, yeah. 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 yeah so it, I think it's all those kind of things. It's, you almost take those kind of things for granted, isn't it? I guess at the time they would have, they would have appeared more um, odd and, and science fiction, whereas now you don't even, you don't even notice it. It's like they're, they're, they're carrying automatic weapons, but at the time police in America weren't carrying automatic weapons. So it's those kind of things that, you know, you just take for granted because obviously not long after that they they were, or they certainly were in films anyway. So it's it's, it's all those kind of little things that have, have almost... I guess it's... I can't believe I'm going to say this. I guess it's almost a bit like watching Citizen Kane in the way that... <laughs> I can see your acceptance of that. In, in the way that... 
a, a lot of the methods and ways of doing things. So that's more to do with the way it's shot, but the the methods and ways of doing things were were kind of that new for Citizen mm. Kane that it was surprising and fresh at the time. But we're that used to kind of those tropes and things that that now they're not. Yeah, not not the most successful analogy. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, things look normal now as to what back then looked shocking and surprising. It's you know, everything from the the TV cameras everywhere to the drones. Yeah, although Gene Simmons still looks shocking and surprising. <laughs> they did seize a bullet from uh, Gene Simmons's little hotel suite. This is where they realise that they have the technology to ch- to actually aim this bullet if you've got the right gun at individuals based on their heat signature and and all this. That's when it started getting really sort of almost conspiracy theory type where they could have a bullet with every police officer's name on and and this, that and the other. And then the really bloody weird bit was when Tom Selleck goes to see a psychic. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see that coming. No, (laughs) she did. It's it's kind of... Yeah, it was a bit. It was sort of like, oh, hang on, it's like they've they've just drugged someone out of poltergeist for it or something. You know, it was like it was all very Tangina, but it was uh, yeah. I I don't even know really how or why that fit in. Hopefully, I don't think it did. That'll, hopefully that'll be in the director's cut because some of the stuff she was saying was like, oh, you know, you might have been brothers in a previous life, and <laughs> you know that was just utter. That was Derek Akora level shite. <laughs> Um, this yeah. is all the psychic you get on Phoenix Nights or something. It was just, <laughs> you know, just quoting psychic by numbers. Is there a Mary in the room? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'd almost erased that moment from my head. Yeah, it was only you mentioning it now that it's all, it's all coming back to me. But I must admit, I don't remember it from when I originally watched it. So I, I think certainly that you could take that. That scene does nothing. You can take it out and it, 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 it's, um, yeah, it's just odd. I think it was in the um, the Dead Zone where Christopher Walken had some sort of psychic powers and that's when the police went to him to try and yeah. find this, this sort of killer rapist. And then, but at least that was explained, you know. Yeah, um, definitely. Love that film. Love that film, by the way. Great. I, that kind of threw me out a bit and I had to rewind it to sort of think, did I miss the part where this was introduced? Nope. <laughs> Look, they, they just sort of like seem to go to her, and that's and that, and she's and, and she's kind of like um, dousing or or something. She's got like some implement, but yeah, it is. You say it's like something at like the Conjuring. It's not. It, it doesn't belong in that film. That's for sure. No, not at all. And this is at the at the police station where Kirsty Alley is in custody, or or at least in in protective custody, and she's describing Gene Simmons as this kind of. Blofeld-esque villain that he oh he's terrible you know he's got his fingers in all these pies you know he he'll change do this that and the other and it just seemed like no, but you're talking about Gene Simmons like get a grip woman it's really really weird because then that's when they go into the whole scene where they start searching for bugs he has phoned into the office and they establish that he's actually hacked into their CCTV system which I suppose is quite new technology for then. Yeah. But then, yeah, then I think only, only the A team could have managed that back in back in yeah. 80, 85, 84. Um, and obviously they, they quickly fall that, but in, in doing in sweeping 
each other for bugs. It seems a bit gratuitous that, um, you know, Tom Selleck doesn't have a bug on him, Penny Fleet Dancing doesn't have a bug on her, and shove Kirsty Alley in there with her huge 80s hair, and, oh, she's got a bug there. Oh, right, we're going to have to take your top off now. And, uh, right, so there's you in your bra. And, uh, right, there's a bug in your bra. Take your bra off. Um, and then we see a lot of scars on her back. So suddenly she goes from possibly a complicit partner into perhaps a victim of on a domestic abuse or something like that. And I guess that was probably in there to invoke some sort of sympathy for her. Yeah, I must admit I didn't have any to be honest. No. But I think that was just probably just her performance, really. Jeez. And also, I'm not really, I'm not really forgiven her for a poor performance in. She was shit in Star Trek Two as well, so <laughs> I think it was just. Yeah, I think it was just generally generally poor a poor performance, to be honest. But their their idea of moving her to a secure location, um, <laughs> you know, and bear in mind, she obviously still had the gizmos that could attract the menagerie of killer robots. But then they stuck her in what is basically a Johnny Cab. Yeah, <laughs> and um, that was just a, a weird little scene where Tom Selleck tried to move from one car to another. At, 50 miles an hour on the freeway and had it been Jean-Claude Van Damme it would have been an excuse for him to do a split in between <laughs> thankfully his his moustache did the, the hard lifting there yeah I, I didn't mind that scene again I thought it was it was um, better than what I remembered and I think as well because there just seemed to be uh, wave after wave of the sort of like uh, sort of mini bombs on, on wheels that were kind of chasing them that were kind of you know, honing in on the car which had a laser gun on it, which that was kind of yeah. a, a neat kind of thing. Initially, I thought there was going to be like three, but it just seemed to be wave after wave. So it, I think I think it was uh, it's quite a neat little quite a neat little action scene, really. I think because well, it was like remote control devices, it it kind of had that kind of echo of the Deadpool as well, which yeah, you know, I mean, everyone knows isn't a classic Dirty Harry film, but you go back and watch that today, and and probably the best bit in that film is the remote control uh, car chase so it's remote control car car chase so it's I, I think it kind of evoked those kind of memories for me as well it's funny because those killer robots looked like a cross between remote control cars and uh, the old sort of dial up modems <laughs> yeah I'm surprised they got up to speed then if there were dial up <laughs> modems if Gene Simmons has invented killer modem vehicles that can travel at presumably 60, 70 miles an hour. You know, why isn't he sharing this technology with everyone? He's obviously in the pocket of other evil corporations to keep it down. Or, or maybe he'd just gone down the Betamax route and he kind of wanted to, you know, his was a better product, but he kept it to himself. Well, I think that was, pro- so that was probably his downfall. <laughs> um, once they've made this, sort of, they've survived the gauntlet of the killer modems, they go to a sushi restaurant that, questionable sort of racist almost the way everything is programmed with a cartoon Japanese accent <laughs> yes. which I will not recreate but there's the sort of standoff where uh, Gene Simmons has kidnapped Penny from Dirty Dancing while Tom Selleck who had a massive crush on Kirstie Alley and her hair they try and do a swap for these sort of blueprints for the, the red stripe evil microchips doesn't really go to plan because she doesn't live very long. No, I think she was, you say, I think she was, you know, in that kind of Bond style, she was kind of set up as victim. Yeah. But 
I think because it was Kirstie Alley and because it, it kind of almost was indiscriminate and came out of nowhere, you, you didn't expect it to happen in a, in a sort of a, a crowded restaurant, really, so an uh, outside restaurant. And and if... And if I, I don't know what city it was filmed in, because I know there's that kind of, like, um, waterfall... I'm sure there's more than one city with these things, but it looked very similar to the waterfall at the end of... Deadly Pursuit, which she was in with Sidney Poitier and, and Tom Berenger as well. It could just be a, a kind of similar-looking one, but I'm, I'm sure it it was that same kind of location and stuff as well. You need to have a death scene in some sort of water feature. Sort of yes, yeah. But it was good. It, you know, it was kind of it kind of up the ante and sort of you know all all bets are kind of off and it, it kind of show how unhinged uh, Gene Simmons uh, actually was. You know, basically he kisses her and then stabs her in the back of the head. It's, um, mm. yeah, pretty ruthless, even for Gene Simmons. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. He could have stabbed her with his tongue. <laughs> yeah, I think that was probably a deleted scene. But at this point, so Tom Selleck is trying to pursue Gene Simmons with his blueprints for these killer microchips, and they end up tracking him to a public toilet where he'd implanted a tracker into a toilet roll. He, he doesn't seem very complimentary, and I, I know it's difficult, but the two, or the, the, the police officers who, track, who find this tracker, I mean, it's not their fault that he put it in a bog roll. I, th- I think he's just feeling the pressure. He is, and then the, another standard 80s movie trope where the really ridiculously attractive woman, but let's make her nerdy and give her Deirdre Barlow glasses... <laughs> Um, she's killed in Trap 2 by another robot spider who sneaks in. Yeah. I, 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 say, I think those, those scenes, certainly, I, I know, got you kind of checking, um, again, sounds wrong, sort of checking, <laughs> when you were going to the toilet, checking uh, sort of men's cubicles and things. You know, we were always taught to go to the cubicles because it was safer, <laughs> but after a runaway, it wasn't. It yeah. just didn't seem like safer. Dumb and Dumber as well. Yeah, that I think it was probably that, and also witness scared me shitless. Well, it's kind of like a kind of um, limerick of of uh, sort of toilet cubicles. So I think it's that again that kind of eighties kind of um, as well. So I think I think between them, uh, witness and uh, runaway made me decide to wait to go to the toilet until I got home. You were like that uh, kid from American Pie who couldn't go in a public toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, after Deirdre Barlow has been murdered by the spider, we find that Gene Simmons has got himself a police uniform and an eye of some sort. I don't know, because the computer systems in the future are all done by retinal scans, which, to be honest, isn't that different from the old face ID thing on the new iPhones. No. I'm not sure how he gets that eye, because... Was it in Demolition Man? I think they had something similar, and Wesley Snipes just ripped someone's eyeball out. That's... Yeah, yeah. Again, it kind of screams of like missing scenes somewhere, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Maybe got it from the psychic. Again, didn't see that coming. Um, no. So he logs into the secure police system and sees Jack's son, who, as you already mentioned, was the whiny little sod from Flight of the Navigator. We have the personal peril to Tom Selleck because... Um, Gene Simmons is after his son. Now, it had been mentioned earlier on when um, Tom Selleck was trying to get in the pants of Penny from Dirty Dancing that 
his wife had died in a car crash fairly recently. Being a police officer, it's implied that he spends a lot of hours away and this child is basically being raised by a domestic slave robot. They go to the house because obviously the, the first thing they do is, is look for, is it Billy or Bobby? Or... Some of them are going to be, I yeah, think. Yeah, bastards. They always were. Yeah. Gene Simmons has basically ripped this robot in half. And to the point where we get the line, because obviously they're trying to get some information from this robot about what's happened. And they get the line that, oh, well, she's losing a lot of fluid. So she, we need to get her a bloody Castrol GTX transfusion. It just seems that I think that actually made me laugh out loud. Yeah, you know, I'm sure they're not cheap. And, and obviously the, the child had some kind of emotional attachment. Well, this is a Series 12 robot of some sort, apparently, according to earlier on, when um, Penny from Dirt Dancing's mum only has a, a Series 10 who burns the toast. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And uh, the robot described, sorry, it was Lois, the robot, wasn't it? Described Gene Simmons as an extremely unpleasant man. So then we get the kind of the showdown. Uh, Gene Simmons speaks to, to Jack, saying, come alone to the construction site, I've got your son. Do you want to go through this? Because this, I think I was still laughing at that she's losing a lot of fluid line. Well, obviously it's, a, it's a, the same site he was at earlier, and and actually, funny enough, it looks similar to kind of like one of the lifts he has to get in in Three Men and a Baby when he's doing a, a another similar kind of thing at night, but this time swapping a baby for some no swapping some drugs for a baby, um, but obviously here he's trying to save his, his son's life, um, and it's established sort of from the outset that Sadik's kind of got. Um, a great mistake. Uh, fear of height, vertigo. Vertigo, yeah, that's it, yeah. So it's established early on that sort of Tom Sennett's got vertigo. Um, so it's, it is almost like uh, Crichton's trying to kind of ramp it up a little bit and kind of link it kind of back to Hitchcock. So obviously that kind of scene has to happen where he has to conquer, to save his son, he has to conquer his innermost fear, which is kind of his fear of heights. So um, obviously that's exactly what he does. But obviously while he's he's up there in things, he has sort of spiders and things to contend with and he finds that he's kind of hanging outside the sort of lift that's on the edge of the building and things like that as well. So it's all it's all kind of quite high-octane stuff with um, some not bad sort of blue screen and stuff as well. So I think it works works quite well. And, you know, there are kind of scenes of mild peril there, but obviously it does kind of... You know, is, is that kind of like uh, Sherlock Holmes and, and uh, Moriarty, yeah, sort of like right back falls type type stuff going off as they kind of battle on top, on, on mm. top of this building and with the lift, and um, obviously as all good bad guys do, um, Gene Simmons gets his comeuppance as kind of like he, the lift kind of goes right down to the bottom, but at that very bottom, his um, sort of pet spiders are there waiting for him, but obviously being uh, robots, they have no allegiance and kind of. Fell in full of uh, acid, and then they uh, they kind of uh, explode, taking taking him with them. Um, but uh, you know, he's obviously the kind of the big ending, rather than just one uh, sort of spider. It's kind of like loads of them kind of pumping him full of this stuff. So obviously, he goes with a, a pretty big, pretty big bang. But um, yeah, not not a bad ending, I, I didn't think, and it's kind of suit again suitably B moving. It's what we all kind of what we all kind of wanted, really. Although I'm surprised that he didn't bring his bloody gun with him because then he could have just polished Tom Selleck off in the lift, no problem. But obviously, that would have well, been a different ending. 
But he did have the gun, didn't he? Because he stood over him with his... Oh, actually, that's foot, true. Foot on his chest. Yeah. He did, yeah. So, yeah, actually, yeah, that makes no sense. I guess this is the kind of part that I know gets parodied a lot now and the sort of Austin Powers thing, where it's, why not just kill him? Is it, no, 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 I will uh, leave him for an overly elaborate and exotic death. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I suppose that kind of film lend it, lends itself to that, because it's what we all kind of want anyway. And we know it's all yeah. going to end. So it's yeah. uh, the, the fun is the journey in getting there, I guess. Uh, the weird thing I found was um, Gene Simmons has been killed by these spiders and Tom Selleck goes to kind of just, well, let me just make sure he's dead. He gives off this one final scream. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's just completely like, I thought it'd be like, would it be when the uh, Carl from Die Hard, you know, we all thought he was dead and he came back with his gun and everything else. And But this was just a... Oh, he's dead. Oh, he's dead again. <laughs> yeah. No, that was a bit... Yeah, that was a bit odd. But I suppose, again, we've got used to that... So much to that kind of back from the dead ending which everyone seemed to kind of use certainly in the 80s that that it was kind of uh, i guess i guess it was meant to be a final kind of jump scare but it, it wasn't really it was a did they have such a thing as a laugh scare i don't know <laughs> uh they do now yeah <laughs> and then of course despite tom Selleck's somewhat over lusting after kirsty alley he does end up going well for dinner really with uh penny from dirty dancing when she suggests they go for dinner, and uh, he's basically saying, "Can you cook?" I don't know if that's a that's misogyny going on there or, or what. But, uh, and they they kiss for pretty much the duration of the closing credits. Yeah, that, obviously he got his dinner, but I think it's about the <laughs> "Can you cook?" because I, th- I think that the because um, obviously his robots knackered. Uh, obviously he's got no one to cook for for him now. So uh, so obviously I think that was probably why he was asking. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, he's he's not. You know, he's no he's no James Bond. He's been able to whip up a quiche. Quiche de cabernet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whip up some burnt toast. Um, yes. But I yeah, and and my thing as well, I suppose, is for the duration of those final credits while they're kissing. Um, she must have some terrible moustache burn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, she'd, if they'd had to, if she'd had to come back to um, her next film and do reshoots, it'd have been like the opposite of Henry Cavill in um, <laughs> in, in Mission Impossible. They'd have, um, no, no, sorry, in uh, Justice League, they'd have had to yeah. kind of kind of uh, rubbed it out afterwards. Yeah, stash burn, obviously. I, I was hoping, you know, and I suppose this would be a, a bold gamble if they were going to chuck some sort of futuristic line in at the end, where, and it would have been really scary if he said. How about we go for dinner? And she just said, uh, Netflix and chill. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that really would have been uh, kind of um, kind of ahead of its time. I, I think t- talking of ahead of its time as well, um, I think one thing we've not touched upon is its its music. And mm. um, like, like a lot of things in the 80s, not amazing films had some great people scoring them. So uh, this is uh, Jerry Goldsmith. And actually, if memory serves, this is his first full electronic score which obviously lends itself quite well considering the the kind of subject matter so i think the music was kind of um was kind of you could tell it was a uh, goldsmith and i think it kind of lent itself to it and, and kind of again helped raise the bar from the film it kind of actually was 
it did seem to work really nicely i think um and this is the part where it's it wasn't overbearing but it kind of in a way when a film is looking at the future and this is the problem where even if the music is written beautifully and composed beautifully if you stick a load of synths in yeah. that it's immediately like right 80s it was the same with um you know, blade runner for example you know that's supposed to be set in 2019 so i'm amazed they didn't have some sort of uh one direction or x factor bollocks but um yeah just stick a bit Atari. Of, yeah just stick a bit of synth in there with the time yeah that won't, that won't date at all people in this decade will still be loving it well i suppose i suppose hans zimmer still likes a, a synth or two yes well he's uh he, he's been around i suppose in in the 80s he was composing the theme tune to a uh, daytime bbc one game show so <laughs> yeah, hard to believe he went from that to like uh, Black Rain uh, <laughs> and things. But uh, yeah, right. So that was Runaway. And before we sort of go and um, we'll talk about what you do for the Daily Jaws, I just want to thank you very much for encouraging me to uh, use the iTunes gift card I got for my birthday and buy this film. And uh, it was really, I, I'm not going to lie, it was crap. I, <laughs> I bloody loved it. I really it, enjoyed it. It, it was enjoyable crap, but, you know, as I've said a couple of times in here, I think it's the sort of thing that really is, you know, especially with drones and everything and, and kind of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure it'll never be available on Amazon Prime, on, on Prime Video, because, uh, you know, um, they'll be fearful that, that kind of Alexa will kind of go a bit <laughs> AWOL and do do all sorts of things that, that are in here. Um, Only pasta. Yeah. <laughs> But um, I, I really do think it's the sort of thing that, you know, is is that bad? It's good and and has some real core ideas to it, and and really could be remade or wh- whether it's a, a, a sort of a, a Netflix movie or whether it's um, sort of theatrically released. I think it's the sort of thing that's kind of got got the scope for that, and not not too many people are aware of it, like your good self. So I think it's the sort of thing that that could really get you know some some new fans and things. Can't, yeah. uh, de- definitely a cult classic. Well, hopefully, when it's remade with uh, Matt LeBlanc and The Rock, we'll uh, and maybe a cameo from Tom Selleck, we can all sit down and and enjoy it and see what they have planned for our future in the uh, uh, twenty thirty years from now. <laughs> yeah, we de- definitely need uh, definitely the Selleck cameo, or you know, yeah. or p- perhaps we, it can be some hybrid um, three men in a little whatever kind of uh, kind of spin off. You know, th- that'd be quite good. Get get Selleck. Dancing and and Gutenberg uh, battling uh, robot spiders. That'd be now that'd be worth seeing. Um, I'm not gonna. I don't want to tempt fate or anything. I know Gutenberg is an '80s legend, but uh, I'm sure he's probably available. Definitely. <laughs> We've got quite a few more lined up of these. Yeah, we might eliminate the tech gremlins at some point, but uh, I know in the future we've uh, we've got all sorts to come, haven't we? The two of us have got uh, big trouble in little China. Canine, the Untouchables, Young Sherlock Holmes. There's a, a wide, a wide yeah. variety going on here. Definitely, that's a, you know, it's a great, it's a great evening's entertainment. Uh, so I'll be having lots of fun, even if no one else <laughs> will be. But um, but I know um, I, my daughter, she's sort of like almost eight, but she watched um, Young Sherlock Holmes for the um, for the first time of the week, and she she loved it. So it's it's great that you know some of those eighties films. Perhaps Running Away isn't one of them, but you know that some of those '80s films do stand the test of time, and are kind of um, 
being passed on to the next generation. Oh, excellent. Well, maybe uh, maybe we'll have to uh, convince her to come on and give her a little review of it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's probably probably more coherent than me. We'll see. She, as long as she's not high on Haribo or whatever eight-year-old kids are into. <laughs> no, no. I wonder what he said then. Not uh, I thought he said uh, something else rather than Haribo. But yes. <laughs> Lovely. Well, um, Dean, thank you very much for joining the um, the Beatmax Video Club again. Um, I'll be taking this one back to the video shop uh, with pleasure. And uh, just to finish off, the song that was number one when this film was released in the UK, uh, 21st of June 1985, was You'll Never Walk Alone. So uh, if you're a Liverpool fan, stick with it. If you're not, please turn off. Dean, thank you very much. Cheers, Rich. I'll speak to you soon. Okay, speak to you soon. Bye. This podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or BritpodScene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.